One of the things that we feel is loyalty is a dated construct. I have a cell phone and it has a service provider and I am loyally paying that service provider every month. I have very little intimacy with that brand. So loyalty can be a kind of tricky construct. You know, I'm a trap loyalist when it comes to my cell phone service provider. And we think intimacy is a better compass, a better, a more elevated sense of engagement with a brand and a better way to think about brands for the modern era than loyalty. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special live video episode of the Retail Remix podcast. I'm Alicia Esposito, and we have a very exciting conversation lined up for you today with Mario Nattarelli, who is managing partner at Emblem. Mario, thank you so much for taking the time out. Uh, Really excited to dig in and talk shop with you. Great to meet you and be with you as well, Alicia. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. So with that, like I said, you're a managing partner at Emblem. For those who don't know you or the firm, the work you do, why don't we start there? Why don't you share a little bit about the work that you do every day? Sure. Well, Emblem is headquartered in New York City. We're a brand agency. We help clients build, shape, and nurture their brands. We've been doing this now for going on our 11th year. Prior to that, I was the CEO at Future Brand, a global brand consultancy. So I've been in the branding business for close to 25 years now. Excellent. Well, brand is something I personally am very passionate about. I think it's a very exciting time for branding as an art, as a science. And what I find really interesting about Emblem and and the work that your firm does is that you focus on brand intimacy. And, you know, at Retail Touchpoints, we talk a lot about personalization and how to forge customer relationships. So right in our sweet spot, but brand intimacy as as a term, as a measurement is very interesting to me. So why don't you share a little bit about how this is defined in your firm and what it really means? Because I feel like you can kind of go in a lot of different directions there. Brand intimacy is predicated on something that we're very passionate about, and that is that we know that when we make decisions, we use emotion to make those decisions. We like to think of ourselves as rational creatures. However, behavioral scientists have proven that emotion drives the decisions we make. Yet, when we think about brand building or marketing efforts in general, we tend to use a very rational lens or rational process by which we shape marketing. And we felt that that was a lacking need in the market. We felt that that was something we could address with a new agency approach. And a real simple way of thinking about it is that if you imagine the bonds that you're forming between the brands and the customer as the thing that you want to nurture. In other words, marketing and brands aren't a thing. They are a relationship. And like humans who form relationships over time and in different degrees of intensity, we do that with brands that we use and love. And so we wanted to find a better way to measure that and also to create that for clients that were in need or could improve their brands or their marketing efforts. So that's really at the core of what we call brand intimacy. It's the emotional science of how we bond with the brands we use and love. Yeah, no, it's very fascinating. So so to go a layer deeper, I'm so glad that you brought up the emotional versus the rational side of the decision-making process because I feel like 
those sides of our brains, our emotions, you know, sometimes they're at a tug of war with each other. But that also kind of depends on the category, right? Like, I may not have such an emotional connection probably to the brand of toilet paper I'm buying and maybe more driven by price or, or value, being able to buy something in bulk, for example. But to dig deeper into the drivers of brand intimacy, you know, because you, you measure this, you assess it at the brand level. I mean, what does Emblem specifically look for or look at while measuring or assessing brand intimacy? Yeah, it's a great question. It is true that some industries leverage this less than others, but we do think it's universal. And it's also true for how you think about brands in the broadest sense. So whether they're business brands, consumer brands, whether they're personal or entertainment athlete brands, the science that we're going to share with you today is applicable across all of those things. Maybe just to, to take a step back, let me give you a sense of how we got to the idea of brand intimacy and then maybe describe the model itself, if that's helpful, Alicia. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We've been at this, like I said, for 10 years. We've gathered a lot of information. We started by doing qualitative interviews, and we really started by talking to customers about how they bond with other people. We tried to figure out if those patterns were similar to how we bond with brands, and it actually is true that those patterns are the same. And we, over time, also noticed cultural differences. We've done these studies in different parts of the world, and with different kinds of brands. And so we started to amass a lot of data, a lot of stories, talked to a lot of different kinds of consumers and looked at a lot of different kinds of brands. And we really wanted something uh, simple that could be explained easily and implemented easily, but something that could work in the broadest way. And thinking that's been formalized in a book, in a theory around this concept of brand intimacy, and it's also something that is fueled by our annual studies, which I know we're going to talk more about in a second. But let me give you a sense of also what's behind it all. And that is this kind of vast warehouse of data that looks at brands across industries, by demographics, and also what technology or the role of technology is playing in it. Here's probably the simplest way to explain it. Brand intimacy model is composed of four main pieces. First piece, which is I think the most important, is that it's predicated on you being a user. So right away, we're not measuring what you think about a brand or what you may associate or what you may have heard. It doesn't actually start counting, if you will, until you are a user or an owner of the brand. So that's really important. And then we break the model down into two components of archetypes and stages. And then we come up with a quotient score out of 100 using those two elements. And for the sake of your viewers, I'll just drill into some of these in a little more detail just to give you a sense of what we mean by each of these. So let's start with archetypes. These are fascinating characteristics of how we bond with brands. There are six of them. No one is more important than the other. And brands generally leverage a few at a time. So the first is fulfillment, a brand that happens to bond with you through the sense of superior service, of delivering quality. So think of a brand like Amazon as being a kind of ultimate fulfillment brand. The next archetype is this idea of identity. This is a brand that connotes an aspirational image or an admired value. A brand like Harley Davidson does uh, this extremely well. Or think of Patagonia is another great example of a brand that's strong morals and strong sort of ethics. Enhancement is a very powerful and interesting archetype. And this is one where... You can imagine a lot of technology companies like a Google or a Samsung being very strong here. This is, a, this is about being smarter, a brand that makes you more capable or more connected. 
The next archetype is ritual. And you can imagine a brand like Starbucks is very ritualistic. This is about how a brand gets to be part of your daily actions, kind of vital part of your existence and used on a more frequent or pattern basis. The nostalgia archetype is a very powerful one uh, because it's about the memories of the past or poignant feelings. A brand like Lego does this extremely well. Disney uses nostalgia effectively as well. One of my favorite archetypes, and we'll talk about this more in the retail part of, of our discussion, I'm sure, is this archetype of indulgence. This is a brand that pampers you. It's about gratification. And health and beauty products are obviously big in this. But, you know, even a brand like Netflix is about indulgence. This idea of binge-watching is very much an idea of indulgence that Netflix takes advantage of. So those are the six main archetypes that we measure effectiveness against. And then the next area of the model is what we call stages. Think of this as degrees of intensity between you and the brand. There are three of them. You move from one stage to the other, and it gets increasingly more difficult to move a brand up those stages, but they become ultimately more powerful. The bond becomes ultimately more powerful as you move up the stages. So the first stage is this sharing stage, where you and the brand are first in, uh, sort of engaged, you're getting smarter on the brand. The brand is actually learning more about you and maybe using that to either personalize the experience or to enhance the offering for you. And so that early stage of intimacy is what we call sharing. The next is what we call bonding here. You and the brand are becoming, in a sense, more monogamous. So you're using it more to a more exclusive extent, limiting out the competition in a way. And a sense of trust is forming between you and that brand. And then finally, the final stage is fusing. This is rare. You probably only have a few brands in your life that you have kind of fused with. Think of this as you and the brand are inextricably linked. Your values and its values are very much aligned. And again, rare, however, extremely powerful to be fused with a brand. So we use those stages and archetypes to create an algorithm that defines a score for a brand. And that score is generally between zero and 100. Strong brands score between 50 and 70, and we'll share more about brands that do this in our study year over year. Yeah, this is great. A lot of really good stuff here, Mario. And I really love how granular you get in your analysis, and it really digs deep into the passion and connection that we feel for so many brands that we interact with every day. So you, you noted that you know research is a really core part of the work that Emblem does, and you know obviously the reason why we're here today, how we got connected, is because of some new brand intimacy research that is aligned specifically to the events over the past year, everything that's been happening with the pandemic. Um, I do want to ask, why do you think, obviously, research in general is, is important to help benchmark industries, specific companies, and identify best-in-class versus everyone else so we can identify those opportunities for innovation and improvement? But why do you think this was especially important, just given everything that, that's happening now? I know, I know we have been tracking the shifts in brand loyalties and preferences, but uh, I mean, what, what has been tracking for your team and why did you think this was especially important right now? Well, it was especially important to rethink or define a new paradigm for branding 10 years ago because we felt that the tools we were using weren't really keeping attuned to the times, right? I think that the role that technology is playing in the brands that we use and love, how the world consumerism is evolving, we didn't see that there were 
effective branding strategies to keep pace with that. That was the reason to start Emblem and the reason for brand intimacy. And then the world turned upside down about a year ago and we wondered, okay, well, what did the pandemic do now to what we were thinking around brand intimacy or the bonds that we were forming with the brands that we were using? Did it improve things? Did it worsen things? And so we were excited to see what would happen. This study was fielded a few months into the pandemic. And I'm curious to see what would happen if we were to do this right now, because I'm sure things have moved on a little bit in our lives, as, as you would imagine. But the simple question we wanted to know is, how did COVID change the brands we use and love and why? Yeah. And we're going to dig deep into a lot of these takeaways and most notably some of the top ranking companies in, in retail. But two findings I, I did want to call out as I was going through some of the background and some of the key findings, the, the two that really stuck out to me were, so consumers demonstrated a 23% increase in the number of brands they have an emotional connection with. And, and this was a significant increase from the last study, right? And respondents also indicated higher scores across all brand intimacy stages. And it's funny I say this now because I was talking about how brand loyalty has been such a big topic in retail and, and it's usually a point of struggle. So, I mean, do you think this is kind of contextual to the circumstances? Was it how businesses were responding to the pandemic and it kind of sparked all of the, the warm and fuzzies for us as consumers? I mean, what, what kind of led to this increase? Yeah, I think that answer your question, it, the context definitely impacted this initially. When this study was fielded early in the pandemic, I think context was key. I do think what you said in terms of how brands responded to it is more relevant now and going forward. You also said something interesting about this concept of loyalty. One of the things that we feel is loyalty is a dated construct. I have a cell phone and it has a service provider and I am loyally paying that service provider every month. I have very little intimacy with that brand. And many of us feel maybe similar with brands like that. So loyalty can be a kind of tricky construct. You know, I'm a trap loyalist when it comes to my cell phone service provider. And we think intimacy is a better compass, a better, a more elevated sense of engagement with a brand and a better way to think about brands for the modern era than loyalty. To the point about what we discovered, we were as shocked as probably you were when you saw this. 23% increase was not what we were anticipating. I guess you can explain it with this sort of sentiment that as we became more isolated, the bonds that we were forming with the brands around us, especially those brands that were giving us sustenance, were increased, right? We cared more about the foods we were eating, the news we were reading, the shows we were watching, or whether it's paper towels or toilet paper or whatever, all of that took on new meaning for us in the pandemic than it may be before and certainly now as we ease out of it. And it is interesting that all the stages of, of brand intimacy were affected, right? So we saw increases across the board. Again, unexpected and maybe easy to understand given the, the circumstances. Yeah, some great points. And I really liked how you called out that uh, distinction between loyalty and intimacy and how loyalty may have some gaps or issues in terms of how it's defined and applied. So definitely a really good point. But I do want to note that I was excited 
that you kind of provided a good menu of 10 categories that your firm studied and retail ranked number three in terms of the categories that are, are doing it best. I think we we spoke a little bit about, you know, how, how your firm measures intimacy, but are, is there any nuance in terms of how this was done for the different categories or, you know, how the research was done for this particular installment. Just want to make sure everyone kind of understands the full context of the research. Sure. So we do conduct this study every year. We did it twice in 2020 because of the pandemic, and we decided to do things slightly differently. One is we focused on the U.S. predominantly, 3,000 consumers. We shortened the number of industries And what we essentially did is we removed all of the industries that were really struggling or going through a major kind of, for lack of a better word, cratering. I'm thinking about things like hospitality. So we took those industries out because we felt that it would be kind of almost moot or unfair to look at those brands relative to others. Uh, And in this particular study, we looked at 100 brands. And we were happy to see that notwithstanding those changes, Some things held true. Brands that were excelling continued to, in fact, even maybe did better. And retail overall moved up a notch in the overall rankings ahead of tech and telecom, which is kind of interesting given the times that we're living in. Technology played an ever-increasingly important role during the pandemic. So for retail to kind of notch ahead of it was surprising in a way. I think Some of this could be attributed to the two really strong retail performers, Amazon and Walmart. And maybe this is a good time to also explain how we group brands. And this is becoming harder and harder to do. Is Amazon really a retailer? I know it's got legacy in in retail, but so much of that business or so much of that brand is really about many things. And that's true of a lot of the brands in our study. So is Apple tech and telecom or is it lifestyle? What is Disney really? Is it hospitality? Is it entertainment? Is it many things, right? And so big brands, conglomerate brands are really becoming category busting in a way. So you have to kind of take some of these industry findings with a grain of salt because there are brands in there that you could argue could live in other places. Yeah, no, that's really a good point. I think we'll kind of get into the specifics of Amazon, Walmart, you know, some of those those top performers in retail, which I can't say I'm necessarily surprised of those outcomes. But I do want to zoom out a little bit and, you know, talk about retail as a whole. Again, you noted an improvement in ranking for retail in overall brand intimacy. Is there a high-level take on what retailers have been getting right or were getting right when this survey was conducted? Any particular gaps that impacted ranking? I mean, it would just be good to get that high-level perspective before we dig into specific companies. Yeah, I think the role of retail clearly played a more important role in our lives. And I think a couple of things early in the pandemic, clearly those that had digital optimized or were able to streamline fulfillment benefited the most. So those that could move product and or get sales through digital channels clearly benefited. The large players like Amazon and Walmart, I think, gained market share and mindshare, frankly, during the pandemic. That's probably going to kind of right side when things come back to normal. But you can see here overall close to a 10% uptick in overall retail performance. Again, we're measuring big brands, generally speaking here. So I know there's another side of retail 
that kind of street level, more community oriented retail that has not felt probably this level of performance has probably struggled through this pandemic. And I'm hoping that, that the world changes in their favor now as we ease out of this. So this is a bit of a two-sided coin, right? The big players or the digitally enabled ones thrived, the smaller players and those that were more dependent on foot traffic or more community-oriented access suffered. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because as I was going through the list, narrowing in on the top three, of course, again, like I said, not necessarily surprising given the capabilities of these retailers, the level of scale as well as capital. So is it safe to say that they have an impact on whether a company is able to achieve brand intimacy, or if we want to kind of get into a conversation around like what these companies did right and what they did wrong, and then kind of go into that because you did bring up the Main Street impact. That's totally fine too. Do you want to kind of start there? Let me say that when we started Brand Intimacy, we wondered a lot of the similar things that you're questioning, which is, does size matter? Does, In other words, is it easier to be intimate with consumers if you have a bigger brand? Does the amount of advertising matter? Does the frequency of use matter? Does first impression matter more than second, third, or fourth, fifth touches or, or impressions? And we have found answers over time to some of those questions. Scale does not matter. So we do have some brands in the study that do extremely well. The best example is is actually Whole Foods. Before it was acquired by Amazon, it was in the top 10 ranking. So that's a relatively small business compared to some of the big brands that we are looking at. And the other thing is that stock price or sales, revenue, those factors don't matter in our study. They don't factor in at all. So I know there are other brand ranking systems out there, whether it's valuation or reputation or those other studies do factor in scale of a business differently. And I think that's one of the things I like about our study is that size does not matter. Also, frequency of use doesn't matter. So a brand like Instagram that people may use 20 times a day, 40 times a day, doesn't necessarily benefit them from a brand intimacy perspective versus, let's say, a car brand or a brand that you might use more like a hotel brand that you might use only once or twice a year. Okay, got it. Now that distinction is very helpful and it's good to see that there may be some takeaways or learnings from some of these brands that even the the smaller businesses can apply because I think that's really the goal for us from a editorial standpoint, right? To try and amplify it and democratize these insights as much as possible. So with that, let's kind of dig into the, the top performers, Amazon, Walmart, Whole Foods specifically, because they're the top three, we'll give them their time to shine. Going back to those measures or those factors that you dug into earlier, how you measure brand intimacy. I mean, what did these three companies in particular really get right for for this installment of the research? And what you're asking is also at the root of why we do this study. It isn't to make Walmart better or Amazon better. It's actually to use this with smaller brands or smaller businesses who are trying to become more elevated. This is really for the brands that are aspiring to greatness. What can we learn from these great brands that we can apply to those smaller and so smaller brands who are up and coming? So what did they get right? Many of the great brands in our study do a lot of things extremely well. And what is interesting is when you just take one 
segment of data like demographics. So here we're looking at top performers in retail by gender, by age, and by income. And we could use lots of different other sort of segmented data. This is just one example. You can see how Amazon really dominates both in gender across most of ages, age spectrum, and with largely lower income audiences, but also still ranks in the top three with, with higher income. And then who is kind of right behind them in many of those instances is Walmart. And so that's a really hard thing for a brand to do, right? It's very hard to span gender, age, and income consistently and over the long term. So that's one thing that at least two of these brands do really well. Whole Foods does well across genders and extremely well with higher income. It's not that far behind in these others either, but it really does well there. The one thing I'm, I'm curious about Walmart, or Whole Foods, sorry, is I keep waiting or wondering what the Amazon effect to that brand will be. Anecdotally, I know people sort of feel less, feel like the experience of Whole Foods has suffered since the acquisition by Amazon. It's become primified, right? I've heard some of that kind of joking going around. So I, I do wonder if that has long-term implications to grading the whole food performance. But I hope that helps answer your question. You know, this is just one example of the many things they do, right? As we drill down into the presentation, you'll see some others. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I've actually heard similar things around the Amazon impact on the Whole Foods experience because there were some unique attributes that not only made people feel like they belonged to the Whole Foods community, but they felt connected to the mission and in turn the products that Whole Foods has been able to successfully curate. And like, you know, there are still benefits to being a part of that Amazon machine, so to speak, the prime integration, the fulfillment, of course, but it's like to, to what end does that become a value driver and, and creator of intimacy or, or does it ultimately have an impact in, in the long run? But I do want to go through some of the other companies that ranked in the top 10 because they were very top of mind for us from an editorial standpoint. We saw Target, the Home Depot, even Sephora really try and level up their experiences in some way, try to close some gaps from an experience standpoint in order to best serve their customers. And I know we're kind of getting short on time. So um, any other takeaways from, from those particular companies that the folks listening can take notes on, possibly apply? Yes, Sephora is a fantastic example of, again, a relatively small business that does extremely well in our rankings. And we've been trying to get to the heart of their magic sauce here. What is it that they're doing that causes them to rank so high? Even though they've slipped down in overall ranking, probably due to COVID, they still do extremely well. And if you look at their archetypes, that little diagram on the spider diagram there, you can see where they spike and that is indulgence. You remember that archetype is about pampering or self-gratification. And this is a brand that gets it, knows how to enhance that experience with its stakeholders. It's become a kind of essential service for its consumers in a way that few other brands can match. So. Kudos to that team. They've really got that brand figured out and working extremely well. Yeah. I love that you brought back that point around pampering. Self-care was a huge trend that drove a lot of 
consumer spending and just interest for brands in, in skincare. That's kind of why we see beauty as an area to watch in some respects because they were able to be a source of support in some ways for consumers. And they were also able to adopt really innovative technologies and experiences to support their customers, whether it would be through social media, like live streaming, but also through live support, through video chats and conversations just like this. I do want to just point out on your visual right now. So when I was going through the research and the final ranking, I like stopped in my tracks when I saw Instacart. So a lot of demand around fulfillment and you brought up earlier, like some companies, it's like, oh, well, are they a tech company? Are they a retailer? Like it's all kind of starting to blend together. Can you explain this ranking for me? I wish I had a better answer than what you just gave, right? I think, (laughs) you know, maybe this one will change after COVID. At the end of the day, this is what the general population of the U.S. tells us, right? And we can read the tea leaves somewhat. I think this is largely due to the issues you raised, right? Ease of purchase and fulfillment at a time of social distancing and sort of remote living. So that might be the best explanation I can give you. I know that people who use it love it and enjoy it. So there must be something in that frictionless experience that's really working. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and it's interesting because... They have so many relationships with a lot of these retailers, right? So they're kind of building their own retail network, which makes them so valuable. Similar to Sephora, they're kind of aggregators, if you think about it, right? You know, Sephora is aggregating all these beauty brands, and maybe Instacart is taking a similar strategy in in a different way, clearly. Yeah. No, really fascinating stuff. And, you know, to kind of round out this resource, which I feel like we can talk hours about, there are so many layers and and angles here, but it was noted that the top intimate brands significantly outperformed the leading brands in the Fortune 500 and S&P 500 across revenue growth, profit growth, stock price. I know you said earlier that these factors don't necessarily impact brand intimacy, but it seems like the opposite, right? Brand intimacy can can support these. So can you explain that connection, kind of break it down? Because I know sometimes with things that feel squishy to people or like, not metrics driven or measurable. They're like, okay, well, why am I even going to invest this? Especially, especially now, right? Because everyone's being super critical of what they're prioritizing. So can you explain the connection of how something like brand intimacy can be monetized and, and lead to actual growth? Sure. One of the things we did from the beginning when we were researching this was we wanted to know what the economic impact of it all was. And so every time we were asking you, well, how intimate are you with these brands? We were also asking a lot of economic related questions. Would you pay more for it? How much more would you pay for it? Would you pay less for it? How much less would you pay for it? And so we were trying to find correlations between the degree of intimacy and your willingness to pay more. What we learned over the time is the following. One, we know (laughs) definitively that the more intimate you are, the greater you can drive engagement and behavior change. That's a really important thing when you're trying to shift the company or transform a brand. Next, we know for a fact that the more intimate you are, the more you're willing to pay for a product. And that's just kind of intuitive, right? If you love a brand, you'll want that to be part of your life. And if it costs you a little more, you may be willing to do that. Next, we looked at all the top performing intimate brands and we continually, year over year, 
measure them against the Fortune 500 and Standard and Poor's indexes. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, those indexes are really hard to maintain performance in. So Fortune 500 is revenue-based. If your revenue drops, you're out of the Fortune 500. Standard and Poor's uses different measures. And again, though, if you fail in performance, you're out. So to have brands that rank better than those indices over time in revenue and in profit is extremely hard to do. And intimate brands do that. And they do that by a wide margin. So what does that tell you? It tells you that these businesses are thriving. And they're thriving because they're really close to the customer. They really have built a bond that has driven performance, whether it's through volume and revenue or whether it's through margin and profit or sometimes both. And so that for us is a validating element to this, right? That this is something a CFO would care about, a CEO or chief strategy officer would care about. And I love your term squishy, right? We have these debates with marketers and with business people all the time, right? They look at this and think, oh, that sounds really great. It sounds intuitive. I would love an intimate brand, but I'm not going to invest more than I normally would in this. And we need this kind of validating data to show them that this isn't just something that makes sense. It makes business sense. Love that. So rounding up our conversation, let, let's try and put a nice little bow on it for all of our listeners and viewers right now. You know, we, I feel like we've been able to pluck a few lessons and, and takeaways throughout our chat today, which is fantastic. But if we were to kind of summarize some of the key lessons for everyone right now, knowing that we have everyone from like tier one retailers all the way down to DTC brands and even some small businesses. Are there, are there any core takeaways that can be applied and, and scaled for these businesses no matter where they fall? Yeah. And, and a natural extension of the conversation for us normally with people we share this with is, is that's great. How do I do this? Where can I get it? How do I make this happen? So I think the first and at a very simple level is remember that brand isn't a thing. It's a relationship. It's one that you nurture. It's reciprocal. And it isn't a one and done thing. It's something that you invest in continually to gain reward and return from. I think that's an important piece of this. Once you move out of marketing and branding as an activity and more as a concept of relationship, it will change a lot of behaviors. When we help brands, we are helping them shape their essence, right? What do they stand for? How do they communicate it? Their story, how do they narrate, draw you in with uh, engagement factor, right? And then experience, how do they orchestrate across channels to deliver in a seamless, frictionless way? Those things sound simple, but they're hard to do continually. They're hard to do as you grow or expand or transform. And that is ultimately what is the kind of secret to, I think, strong bond building between you and the customer. Those three domains of essence, story, and experience, you can use them like a filter. When you look at your brand or your business, use that and say, am I really executing on strategy across all of these domains effectively all the time? What can I be doing better? And how can I grow that bond that I have between my, my different stakeholders? And remember, employees are the most important stakeholder. So when you think about brand intimacy, it has to start with the employee crew, the team that's delivering the kind of most immediate experience for your customers has to be seen as the priority. 
Love that. And I love that you brought up storytelling and how that connects to experience, because I know Emblem also analyzed communication approach, you know, throughout the pandemic. So is it safe to say that these two things kind of go hand in hand and and that messaging and, and storytelling are both going to remain kind of critical as we continue to navigate the ebbs and flows of the situation? I mean, I feel like empathy, storytelling, connection, like those were all really big words that were used over the past year, but I feel like that's only, it's always been important, but I feel like it's just going to remain a centerpiece. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, they they got heightened, didn't they, in the last year or so? They became really either used expertly or used well or misused. And I, I echo your sentiment. I think they're critical kind of levers to effective brand building. In addition to measuring intimacy, we also use an artificial engine that looks at all the communication that comes from a brand on the web and on social media and also what's getting communicated about them. And we analyze that and we look at differences. So this is just a a chart showing the communications of these brands during the pandemic. A little hard to read, so I'll explain one by just picking on Walmart, for example. So Walmart, for example, used new regulations and fast to change and this idea of we in their language, 5.2% more in the case of new regulations, 2.4% more than the competitors with respect to fast change, or almost 2% more when it comes to the word we. And when you think about the implications of that, right, what does that frequency difference mean? Well, in the case of new regulations, it means that they were about clarifying what the restrictions were. When it comes to this idea of being fast to change, it's about staying ahead or being agile. When it's about using inclusive language like we, it's about being approachable. And when you marry that, and I'm only using Walmart as one example just because of time, but if you marry that with what Walmart was doing in reality and their strategy of creating these kind of um, hubs, these regional or local hubs, I mean, Walmart was really, for many people, the only source of sustenance during the pandemic. And they took really strong advantage of that to connect to the community at a real kind of grassroots local level. And their language reflects that. And so it's just one example, and there are many others, but it's important that what you say and what what is being said about you aligns to what you're trying to do from a brand building and brand strategy perspective. All of that complements and continues to add to the idea of building stronger bonds or stronger intimacy, if done well. <laughs> no, good point. I feel like there, there were some moments where the we are all in this together ad spots were getting a bit dizzying and, and frustrating yeah. towards the end there. But right. no, definitely some lessons. Mary, I really appreciate you taking the time out. Like I said, so much to dig into. I feel like we're cutting our conversation short, but we're going to make sure that uh, links are included to the research and any supporting resources for everyone on the line who wants to learn more. But to close us out, I mean, do you have any closing takeaways or thoughts? on how the role of brand intimacy will evolve over the next year? I know obviously this is your bread and butter, so, so you, it's definitely going to be core for, for you, but are you envisioning this becoming a centerpiece to overall business strategy? Do you think consumers will be thinking about more? Why don't we focus on that to close us out? Sure. What we say often to people who have other means of measuring or building brands, this is meant to be complementary and additive. So if you've got, if you're using Net Promoter Score and you love it, 
great, continue using it. We think this is another angle you can add to it. If you're already doing emotional measures, maybe this is just a way to think of intimacy as a strategy to activate your brand as opposed to measure it. So there's many ways that you can integrate this into your current mix, your current methods. And if you're not doing any of this, maybe this is something you can start to look at as a way to think about marketing that responds to the part of our brains that we know are triggering decisions. So we're hoping that over time, this becomes as significant as net promoter score is to people or kind of replacement for loyalty as a measure. That's our goal. That's our aim. We got a long way to go and we learn more every year and it'll be interesting to see how this evolves and how the brands perform coming out of COVID. I'm looking forward to the next study and see what the rebound feels like, looks like. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. So hopefully we can circle back and talk about those new results when they're out. But for now, Mario, really appreciate you taking the time out to answer some of my pretty pointed questions and challenging points there around intimacy, how it's measured, why it's important, and how it differs from loyalty. I think that's going to be a really interesting takeaway for all of our audience members today. So thank you again so much for taking the time out. Thank you, Alicia. I really appreciate it. And uh, to all of you, of course, if you have any questions or follow points you want to make to us or even to Mario, we'd love to facilitate those follow-up conversations. Just drop us a line on LinkedIn, Twitter, email, wherever you can find us. I'm sure we're there. We'd love to have a bigger conversation about this. But for now, thank you all so much for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.